Welcome to the End of Innocence. I'm your host, John Young. Today we will cover our second and final episode of the Zapruder film, which was the video-recorded version of President Kennedy's murder, and it became the most important home movie in the history of our country. In today's episode, we will break down what the film tells us, and we will also hear that the Warren Commission had very little interest overall in the film record of the assassination. It's unbelievable. So today we're going to hear about what the Warren Commission says the Zapruder film told them and how they made it fit their so-called official story. But we're also going to talk about what researchers who have covered this case and researched this case for almost 60 years say they see from the Zapruder film, and how that differs from the Warren Commission version. Texas, the flash, apparently official, President Kennedy died at 1 p.m. Central Standard Time, some 38 minutes ago. This is just in from Dallas. Homicide Chief Captain Will Fritz said today the assassination case against Lee Harvey Oswald is cinched. He said flatly, this is the man that killed President Kennedy. 24-year-old Lee Harvey Oswald. Come on, man. President. No, they're taking me in because of the fact that I'm in Missouri. What time is it? I'm just a passenger. President. Lee Oswald has been shot. There's a man with a gun. The clock atop the school book depository read 12.30 p.m. as the first shots rang out and kept coming for the next nine seconds. Bystanders said that a barrage of shots was fired, appearing to come from several directions around the president's car. The first bullet missed. The next shot struck Mr. Kennedy in the throat and back. Another shot or two struck Governor Connolly. The president's driver, Secret Service Agent William Greer, did not react except to turn with his foot on the car's brake and stare over his right shoulder until the president was hit in the head, at which point Greer sped up the car and drove away. One of the motorcycle policemen left his microphone open, recording the shots on a dictabelt back at police headquarters. One little side note here. The motorcade was due to reach Dealey Plaza at 12.25 p.m., the president and his entourage were late by approximately five minutes, as President Kennedy had unexpectedly taken extra time to shake hands and speak with numerous well-wishers at Love Field. By this time, the president's assassin would have been positioned and ready in the depository window. Carolyn Arnold, a secretary at the depository, spotted Lee Harvey Oswald in its second-floor lunchroom at approximately 12.25 p.m. 
If he was a shooter, why wasn't he in the sixth floor ready to go? Dealey Plaza provided ideal vantage points and cover for an assassination. As the motorcade slowly passed the depository on its way toward the Triple Railroad underpass, there were at all times at least four perfect firing points from which to ambush the president. Abraham Zapruder's film was a relentless clock of the assassination. It not only gives a visual record of the reactions to and the sources of the gunshots, but also represents a device to verify the timing between shots, which occurred in an incredible short time span, less than 9 seconds. We begin our breakdown of the Zapruder film at frame 139, which is one second before the first shot is fired. The president can be seen with his right hand raised, waving to the crowd. Just before the first shot was fired, the president is looking to his left. He hears the gunshot and turns to his right to look toward the grassy no area. This occurs around Zapruder frame 153. The actual firing would have occurred around frames 150 to 151. Both the Warren Commission and researchers agree that the first shot missed the car completely, but both President Kennedy and Governor Connolly react to it. Connolly turned around to his right to look at the president. President Kennedy stopped waving, turned his head 90 degrees to the right, looked directly toward the grassy knoll, and lowered his hand. Jackie Kennedy, who had been looking to her left, did not realize the noises she heard were gunshots until hearing John Connolly yell, quote, oh no, 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 end quote. Then she turned to her right. When the first shot was fired, the view of the president's car from the sixth floor depository window was blocked by an oak tree. A more likely firing position would have been the Dialtex building or the Dallas County Records building. When the first shots rang out, they came close together, one after the other. When the first bullet was fired, it startled Abraham Zapruder, causing his hand to jump in reaction. The film begins to blur at about frame 155. This next shot is where the opinions differ from the Warren Commission version to the researcher's version of what happened that day. This second shot is the Warren Commission's magic bullet. The Warren Commission's theory says that the bullet passed through President Kennedy's neck, being shot from the back, and went into Governor Connolly's chest after it exited Kennedy's body. It went through Connolly's wrist and embedded itself in Connolly's left thigh. If so, this bullet went through President Kennedy's back brace, 15 layers of clothing, 7 layers of skin, and approximately 15 inches of muscle tissue, and pulverized 4 inches of Connolly's rib and shattered his radius bone. And the commission says that that bullet was found later in almost pristine condition on Governor Connolly's gurney. But what I believe and dozens of other researchers believe happened, the film shows us that this second shot came from the front and struck President Kennedy in the throat, causing him to quickly grab his throat. His wife turned to look at him, later stating, quote, All I remember is seeing my husband. He had this sort of quizzical look on his face and his hand was up. I remember thinking he just looked as if he had a slight headache. I just remember seeing that. No blood or anything. End quote. If the Secret Service agent William Greer, who was driving the car, had accelerated the car at this moment, the president's life could have been saved. This second shot occurs at Zapruder frame 193. It clearly shows the president struck in the throat from the front, his upper torso pushed rearward. Viewed through Zapruder's camera, the president's right hand appears to move forward slightly when in fact it is his upper body that is being thrown to the rear. The film shows the changing position of the president's hand in relation to his head. His hands and arms start to drop, then come up to his throat. This motion continues until after the president disappears behind the Stimmons Freeway Road sign. 
and once again, these first two shots occurred at a point on Elm Street when a large oak tree was still blocking the view from the assassin's window on the sixth floor of the Texas School Book Depository. Next, we skip to Zapruder Frame 225. The president emerges from behind the Stemmons Freeway sign. You can tell he's been hit as he raises his arms to his throat. Governor Conley shows no signs of being hit. He is visibly holding his Stetson hat, which is impossible if his wrist has been shattered, as the Warren Commission says it has at this point. At frame 232, I believe Kennedy is shot again. It hits him in his back, pulling him downward and forward. As the Pruder frame 238, you can clearly see the president's response to being hit in the throat. He brings his hands to his throat in a protective motion. Governor Conley realizes at this point that a shot has been fired and begins to look over his right shoulder at the president. Governor Conley heard the first shot, but apparently did not hear the second shot, which was fired approximately two seconds later. He then started to turn to his left when he was battered by a high-powered bullet. This shot narrowly missed John Kennedy, struck the governor in the back, coursed through his chest, and exited by the right nipple. As this shot strikes Governor Conley in the back and the bullet exits his chest, it forces the right front of his jacket away from his body and blocks the view of his shirt. This shot was possibly fired from the western end of the depository, not the sniper's window. It struck Governor Conley from behind. It entered by the right armpit, passed through his chest, and exited below the right nipple at an angle far too steep to have come from the so-called Oswald window. After being struck, Conley's body continues turning to the left at an accelerated rate, and his right shoulder begins to drop. The governor's right hand flinches, and his Stetson hat moves almost out of his grasp, but he keeps hold of it. The beginning of this shoulder drop movement, which was thought to have appeared only around Zapruder frames 237-238, was actually continued in those frames. As Governor Connolly is struck, there is a severe drop of his right shoulder and the puffing out of his cheeks. Governor Connolly would say this after the assassination, quote, I felt the blow from something, which was obviously a bullet, which I assumed was a bullet, and I never heard the second shot. I didn't hear but two shots. I think I heard the first shot and the third shot, end quote. As the Pruder frame 274, which is 2.7 seconds after the third bullet struck and after the fourth shot struck the president, there is no damage to Connolly's wrist, as evidenced by the fact that Connolly is still holding his Stetson hat in his right hand. This proves that Governor Connolly was struck by two bullets, shot number three and an unaccounted four later shot. As the Pruder frame 224, the president is sitting erect against the rear seat of the car. As bullet number four strikes him in the back, which occurs at around frame 228, it pushes him downward and forward violently. His forwardmost position is shown in frame 236. This fourth shot struck the president in the back, six inches below the shoulder line to the right of his spinal column. He still sat erect, held up by his back brace. This fifth and fatal shot, which the Warren Commission claims is the third shot, struck the president in the head, and the power of the frontal impact threw his body to the rear and to the left. The motorcycle officers flanking the president's car knew instantly that he had been badly injured. Officer Bobby Hargis, riding on Mrs. Kennedy's side of the motorcade, was struck in the face by a sheet of blood and brain tissue from the president's shattered head. This fifth shot from behind the stockade fence on the grassy knoll struck the president in the right temple, causing massive fracturing and forcing his head and upper torso violently rearward and to the left. The bullet exited from the rear of his head in the optical region, leaving a wound the size of a grown man's fist. 
At least 80% of the eyewitnesses in Dealey Plaza asserted that a gun was fired on the president's car from the crest of the grassy knoll. At the time of the shooting, the knoll was in front of the car. It is impossible that the fatal headshot came from the depository, which was behind the president. A little side note here, as we've talked about this gentleman in earlier episodes, Gordon Arnold, who was a young serviceman, tried first to film the motorcade from behind the picket fence on the grassy knoll. A man showing CIA credentials accosted him and told him to get away. Arnold moved to a different spot, close to the stairs on the grassy knoll, and resumed filming. He suddenly felt a shot whiz past his left ear and he dropped quickly to the ground. Then a second shot was fired over his head. Moments later, Arnold was kicked by a man in a blue policeman's uniform. The man demanded to know if Arnold was filming. He then took the film from Arnold's camera before disappearing behind the picket fence. At this moment of the fatal headshot, which is a Pruder frame 313, the limousine is barely moving. Critics of the conclusion that the headshot came from the grassy knoll maintain that the president's body was pushed back by the acceleration of the limousine. However, the car did not accelerate until several seconds after the headshot. Myself and many other researchers believe that only milliseconds after the fatal headshot, another shot was fired, which shattered a large bone in Governor Conley's wrist and embedded itself in his left thigh, just above the knee. Secret Service agent Clint Hill ran to the president's car and jumped onto it. He approached Mrs. Kennedy, who had climbed up from her seat and was trying to retrieve a skull fragment from her husband's head that had landed on the rear of the car. There could have been additional shots that were fired in Dealey Plaza that day, perhaps even three to four more. Three apparent bullet marks were found at various places in the plaza the afternoon of the shooting. One by the south curb of Elm Street, one on the north sidewalk of Elm Street, and one by the south curb of Main Street. The latter mark was caused by a bullet that hit the curb and splintered. A fragment of metal and some concrete struck bystander James Tag on the cheek while he was standing near the Triple Railroad underpass. Immediately after the shooting, police and sheriff deputies found a bullet lying in the grass by the south curb of Elm Street. An alleged FBI agent picked up the bullet to examine it, then pocketed it. The bullet has never been recovered. The public's awareness of James Tagg's cheek wound impelled the FBI to examine the spot where the bullet struck the south curb of Main Street, about eight feet from where Tagg was standing. When they went to investigate the curb, the spot where the bullet struck had been paved over. The FBI never admitted this. An additional bullet, which missed both the President and Governor Connolly, slammed into the windshield frame of the President's limousine above the rearview mirror and can be seen in numerous photos. Fired from behind the car, this shot most likely came from the Dialtex building. The Warren Commission's reconstruction of the crime ignored this evidence. The government's response to the existence of what clearly appears to be damage from a bullet on the windshield was that it occurred prior to Dallas. But there are photos that prove there was no damage to the windshield before the assassination. Had there been only one assassin, whether or not it was Lee Oswald, the perfect shot would have been when the limousine was on Houston Street heading north toward the book depository. The view was totally unobstructed. As the car was approaching the shooter, the target would have been getting larger in the rifle scope. The car and the target were moving slowly to make the turn onto Elm Street moments later. The rifle would not have to project out of the window, risking disclosure of the gunman. Instead, we are told the lone assassin chose to shoot just after the car had disappeared behind a live oak tree and had begun to speed up, making the target smaller and smaller. 
He waited until the bright Texas sun was glaring and reflecting directly into his eyes. He waited for the possibility that Secret Service agents might jump onto the running boards on the rear of the car, thus blocking the view from the window. The only reason for the assassin to wait was that there was at least one other assassin waiting on the grassy knoll to the right front of the motorcade and probably another elsewhere within Dealey Plaza. Possibly there were two or three more assassins. The best way to assure success would be to catch the president in a crossfire. This is exactly what happened that day. Because the medical, witness, ballistic, and acoustic evidence has been so corrupted by the official investigations, there is no way to be certain exactly how many shots were fired in total. The minimum number of shots were the four that struck the president, but that requires ignoring the evidence of shots that missed. One shot struck the president in the front of the neck, just below the Adam's apple. One entered the back, six inches below the shoulder line, and just to the right of the spinal column. One shot went to the rear of his head, and there was a shot that entered the right temple from the direction of the grassy knoll. One or both of the head shots could have been fatal. Then there were two shots that struck Governor John Conley, one to his back by the right armpit and another to his right wrist, which ended up in his left thigh. Finally, consider the four or five shots that missed the occupants of the car completely. One caused a minor wound to the cheek of bystander James Tague. Another struck the inside frame of the front windshield of the limousine, above the passenger side sun visor. Three or four hit different areas of the ground in the plaza. The Warren Commission recognized only three shots as having been fired. It ignored the additional shots and misrepresented the location and nature of the wounds of the president by promoting the notion that a single bullet was responsible for the back and neck wounds as well as Governor Conley's wounds. As the shots were fired, construction worker Howard Brennan was sitting on a cement wall across Elm Street from the book depository. He claimed that he looked up and saw someone through the dirty, half-closed six-floor depository window more than 130 feet away and with the bright afternoon sun reflecting in his eyes. Brennan, who needed glasses but was not wearing them, said he saw a man in his early 30s with a fair complexion who was slender and possibly 5 foot 10 inches tall. The man was standing up and resting against the left window sill with a gun on his right shoulder, holding the gun with his left hand and taking positive aim. Brennan also stated that he saw the assassin fire the last shot. That night, Brennan failed to make a positive identification of Lee Harvey Oswald. When questioned about this while testifying for the Warren Commission, he stated that he feared for the safety of his family and himself if he were to identify Lee Oswald as the assassin. Brennan would be the only witness to identify Lee Oswald as the assassin. It cannot be repeated often enough. Lee Oswald had no motive to kill the president. Warren Commission apologists claimed that he was looking for his spot in history. Then why did he deny committing the crime? Why did he make no impassioned political statement? As late as the summer of 1964, as the Warren Report was already being written, Robert Oswald got a phone call from the Warren Commission to see if he could shed some light on the issue of a motive. Approximately eight months into their investigation, they could still not find a motive for the man they insisted had committed the crime of the century. At least a dozen witnesses had told the Warren Commission that Lee Oswald had admired President Kennedy. When Oswald had been arrested in New Orleans in August, he had told a policeman that he liked the president. Only a month prior to the assassination, he had said that President Kennedy was doing a real fine job, quote, a real good job. 
a Warren Commission counsel stated, quote, we ducked the question of a motive, end quote. As much ridicule as Oliver Stone's movie JFK got from the national press, I believe it got far closer to what happened that day than the Warren Commission's version. So what really happened that day? Let's just for a moment speculate, shall we? We have the epileptic seizure around 12.15 p.m. distracting the police, making it easier for the shooters to move into their places. The epileptic later vanished, never checking into the hospital. The A-team gets on the sixth floor of the depository. Now, they were refurbishing the floors in the depository that week, which allowed unknown workmen in and out of the building. They moved quickly into position just minutes before the shooting. The second spotter on the radio talking to the other two teams has the best overall view, the guard spot. B-team, one rifleman and one spotter with the headset and access to the building moves into the low floor of the Daltex building. The third team, the C-team, moves in behind the picket fence above the grassy knoll where the shooter and the spotter are first seen by the late Lee Bowers in the watchtower of the rail yard. They have the best position of all. Kennedy's close and on a flat, low trajectory. Part of this team is a coordinator who's flashed security credentials at several people chasing them out of the parking lot area. Probably two to three more men are down in the crowd on L. Ten to twelve men, three teams, three shooters. The triangulation of fire Clay Shaw and David Ferry discussed two months before. They've walked the plaza. They know every inch. They've calibrated their sights. They've practiced on moving targets. They're ready. Kennedy's motor field makes a turn from Maine on to Houston. It's gonna be a turkey shoot. They don't shoot him coming up Houston, which is the easiest shot for a single shooter in the book depository. They wait. They wait till he gets to the killing zone between three rifles. Kennedy makes the final turn from Houston on to L slowing down to some 11 miles an hour. The shooters across Dealey Plaza tighten, taking their aim, waiting for the radio to say, green, green, or aboard, aboard. The first shot rings out, sounding like a backfire, and this is the call completely. Frame 161, Kennedy stops waving as he hears something. Conley's head turns slightly to the right. Frame 193, the second shot hits Kennedy in the throat from the front. Frame 225, the president emerging from behind the road sign. You can see that he's obviously been hit, raising his arms to his throat. The third shot, frame 232, hits Kennedy in the back, pulling him downward and forward. Conley, you will notice, shows no signs at all of being hit. He's visibly holding his Stetson, which is impossible if his wrist has been shattered. Conley is turning here now, frame 238, the fourth shot. It misses Kennedy and takes Conley in the back. This is the shot that proves there were two rifles. Conley yells out, my God, they're going to kill us all. Somewhere around this time now, another shot that misses the car completely strikes James Craig down by the underpass. Car breaks. The sixth and fatal shot, frame 313, takes Kennedy in the head from the front. This is the key shot. The president going back and to his left. Shot from the 
front and right. Totally inconsistent with a shot from the depository. Again, back and to the left. Back and to the left. Back and to the left. So what happens then? Pandemonium. Disassemble their various weapons, all except the Oswald rifle. I would like to take this time to wish everyone out there a very Merry Christmas. Hope you have a blessed holiday season. I'm very thankful to each and every one that listens each week. We are approaching almost 100,000 hits on the podcast and have thousands of subscribers. We will not have a podcast next week as we will be spending time with family. Again, I would like to wish everyone out there a very blessed holiday season. And we'll see you in early January as we begin to cover just what Lee Oswald was doing in New Orleans a few months before the assassination. We'll see you next time.